0: To the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony.
1: Welcome back to the 24th installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 10 of the Michigan Constitution. As you will recall from the last podcast, I'm going to break Article 1, Section 10 into three different segments. Segment 1 was the bills of attainder provision of the Article 1, Section 10. Now, this second segment we're going to talk about will be the idea of ex post facto laws. Now, here's what ex post facto means.
0: No bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contract shall be enacted. The expression ex post facto laws is a technical one which was in use long before the revolution and had acquired inappropriate meaning by legislators, lawyers, and authors. The phrase is one which relates exclusively to criminal or penal statutes. An ex post facto law renders an act punishable in a manner in which it was not punishable when it was originally committed. More so, the prohibition of ex post facto laws is designed to secure substantial personal rights against arbitrary and oppressive legislation and to secure fair notice that such conduct is criminal.
1: As you can probably guess, we're going to deal with cases whereby the individual is later treated differently because of a new law or because of the change in an existing law. This new or changed law will in some way detrimentally impact the criminal defendant. For most, however, they're going to lose their case. We have at least one where the plaintiff does win, but by and large, folks are not impacted by changes in laws. I mean, at least not ex ex post facto laws to the extent that they believe that they're being harmed. But before I get into any of that, you're a spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast, we'll review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law that helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Our first case of People v. Chapman, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1942, is a rather brief one, but it establishes an important point ex post facto laws are only at issue if it's a criminal law matter, something which was not criminal, but now is criminal. If the law is not related to criminal activity, then ex post facto won't apply. And that was the case here. Mr. Chapman was determined to have been a criminally sexual psychopathic person, but the law at issue was not a criminal law. The law reads as follows.
0: Upon a hearing held, the court shall ascertain whether or not such person is a criminal, sexual, psychopathic person. Upon such hearing, it shall be competent to introduce evidence of the commission by such person of any number of similar crimes together with the record of the punishment inflicted therefor. If such person is determined to be a criminal, sexual, psychopathic person, then the court shall commit such person to the state hospital commission, to be confined in an appropriate state institution, under the jurisdiction of either the State Hospital Commission or the Department of Correction, until such person shall have fully and permanently recovered from such psychopathy.
1: The idea here is that ex post facto laws only apply to criminal statutes. The law at hand here is civil in nature. This law merely states that a person is held for the purposes of their own well-being based upon their mental health disability. The court likened it to a person who is held for the purposes of determining sanity to stand trial. The statute providing for the restraint and care of the criminally insane, which was enacted after the commission of the crime, is not ex post facto. Why? Because this statute is not a criminal law, rather, it's outlining the treatment of a mentally incapacitated person. And while it's not my intention to make things politically correct for the sake of this podcast, I did update some of the terminology to better help you, the listener, understand the language used from, you know, an an 80-year-old court case. I did, however, keep the term criminally sexual psychopathic person in this review because, well, you just don't hear that term anymore. Although, again, we've got another very brief case review. Uh, People versus Moon, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1983, is the basis for a foundation upon which a number of other cases will be discussed. There's a fairly small fact pattern in it is as follows. Defendant Moon pled guilty to assault with intent to commit second-degree criminal sexual conduct and was subsequently sentenced to five years of probation with the first year to be spent in the county jail. The defendant argues that his sentence of five years probation with one year in the county jail violates the ex post facto clause of the Article 1, Section 10 provision within the Michigan Constitution. His argument is, at the time he committed this CSC second offense, well, the jail time maxed out as totaling six months of jail time to be served. The Court of Appeals held that a statute which impacts the prosecution or disposition of criminal cases involving crimes committed prior to the effective date of the statute violates the ex post facto clause if any of the following four things happen. So, for example, if number one, the statute makes an act punishable but was not punishable when originally committed, or number two, makes the act taken by the defendant a more serious criminal offense, or number three, the act passed by the Michigan legislature increases the punishment of the action taken by the defendant, Or finally, number four, it lowers the threshold which the prosecutor must meet to convict the defendant. Here in our case, we have to focus in on number three, the fact that the act passed by the legislature now increases the punishment directed toward the defendant. Because remember, what we're dealing with here, at the time that the defendant engaged in the assault, the most a defendant could be sentenced to was six months in jail. But by the time he got convicted of the crime, it had been elevated by the legislature to a year in prison. And the Court of Appeals did agree this was a great example of an ex post facto law. The court cited a United States Supreme Court case, which reads as follows.
0: When a court engages in ex post facto analysis, which is concerned solely with whether a statute assigns more disadvantageous criminal or penal consequence, To an act than the law did in place when the act occurred, it is irrelevant whether the statutory changes touch any vested rights.
1: The Michigan Court of Appeal said here in our case, probation may be a substitute for prison time, but probation is still a punishment, and a defendant is sentenced to such a punishment nonetheless. They concluded that sentencing the defendant under this statute as amended violates the ex post facto provision even though the punishment received was within the statute's outer limits. But for this defendant, that punishment was greater than what was in place the day he committed the assault. For that reason, you have to look to what the punishment entails on the day of the offense that the punishment is eligible for the defendant to receive Despite the fact that the Michigan legislature ultimately increases penalties later on down the road the Michigan legislature is certainly allowed to increase penalties on a crime but they can't but what they can't do is make those increased penalties applicable to the defendant in regard to his pre-increased penalty crime timeline because the defendant committed the assault when only six months of jail time could have been imposed. So that's all the more of a punishment a judge can heap upon this particular defendant. So is that clear between when defendant Moon committed the crime, but before uh, he was ultimately sentenced for the crime that he committed in that time, you know, in that in-between time, the Michigan legislature increased the jail time for the crime that defendant Moon committed. At the time Moon committed a CSC second, six months was all the more jail time associated with that crime. However, in the time that it took for him to be arrested, brought to trial and ultimately sentenced for the crime, the Michigan legislature happened to have increased the amount of jail time for a CSC second. And the judge used that new higher amount of jail time law to sentence Moon to one year of jail. But our court of appeals here is saying you can't do that judge when the defendant committed a six-month jail time crime, which is what at the at the time that he committed the CSC second was worth, six months of jail time, even when the incarceration time gets increased, Moon gets the benefit of the lower amount of jail because that's all that was allowed at the time he committed his crime. that being understood, let's go to our next case, which is People versus Potts, uh, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1989. And here we have a defendant who has pled guilty to a reduced charge of voluntary manslaughter. She was sentenced to a prison sentence between 3 to 15 years. Ms. Potts was sentenced under an updated sentencing guideline, however, and this was the crux of her argument to the Court of Appeals. She committed her crime before the sentencing guideline was updated. She believes because the judge used the newer and subsequently more damning guideline by which to sentence her, this amounted to an ex post facto law. Now, side note, let's chat a few minutes about what sentencing guidelines are. These are variables used to score a criminal defendant when they've committed a felony to then determine their range of what the prison time could entail. So, for example, here, in in this case, I mentioned that she was sentenced to an amount of three to 15 years. This means, based on her variables, she was to receive no less than three years imprisonment, but no more than 15 years of imprisonment. So, based on what her criminal history was, what her relationship was with the victim in the manslaughter case, why and how the entire manslaughter case even occurred, all those variables get added up. And then... Much like a multiplication grid from elementary math class, you would evaluate the total score of her criminal history on the top part of the grid, and this manslaughter set of variables down on the left side of the grid, and the box which intersects the column and the row is ultimately where she came up with this uh, getting 3 to 15 year determination of how much prison time she's going to serve obviously here in our case, one of those sets of numbers got elevated because the Michigan legislature chose to increase the variable count values. The lower the number would have been, the lower amount of imprisonment time she got. Obviously, they increased the value of those numbers, which means it's going to increase the amount of prison time she potentially will face. So, back to our case, Ms. Potts' attorney thought it was unfair that she was being subjected to this higher variable count value because at the time she committed the manslaughter crime, those variable count values were much lower. And again, the lower the overall total value, the less amount of time Ms. Potts will serve in jail. And... If we look back at our previous case against Defendant Moon, remember, his punishment time of incarceration went from 6 to 12 months due to the Michigan legislature getting tough on crime. Because that case was found to be an ex post facto law, the attorney for Ms. Potts believed that his criminal offense client should be locked into the lower sentencing guideline numbers. But unfortunately for Ms. Potts, that was not to be the case for her. See, Unlike the Moon case, which was an example of a higher punishment being imposed, this court here points out the crime itself has not had any punishment elevated. The punishment for manslaughter is still the same from the day that she committed it to the day that she is convicted for. The legislature has never increased the amount of, of, of incarceration time for manslaughter. And that, our Court of Appeals rules is merely a procedural process which changed now for Ms Potts is how we score the variables for the sentencing guideline and that our court of appeals rules is merely a procedural process to work as a tool to assist a judge in exercise of determining how much prison time a person should serve the court of appeals concluded that the guidelines are procedural rather than substantive rights because all the normal procedural rights are are still available to the defendant. This action is not in violation of an ex post facto provision of Article 1, Section 10. If that doesn't quite make sense, or if you're still not able to Really wrap your head around the difference between the crimes punishment going up versus, say, the amount of incarceration time going up because of like sentencing guideline. Here, here's another case that's that's somewhat similar in nature. This case is People versus Rousseau. It's a Michigan Supreme Court case, and it was uh, decided in 1992, and it involves a person who could have avoided being charged with a criminal offense except the statute of limitations had been extended out a longer amount of time just before he got charged. It's probably the lengthiest fact pattern of today's podcast, so uh, I think you're going to find it interesting, but you're going to have to stick with me while we while we go through the fact pattern. So here we go. Here, The first thing that you need to know, these dates are important, but don't worry, I will circle back to them later in our review. So for right now, just kind of sit back and listen to what's going on. In April, 1989, the Grand Rapids Police Department received information from a victim, then aged 16, that over a four-year span between when she was five through and until she was 10 years old, she had been sexually assaulted by defendant Russo. These assaults allegedly occurred between 1978 and 1982. Based on that information a warrant was issued for a search of defendant Rousseau's residence on the basis of the 16-year-old's details being contained within her affidavit. An abundance of homemade and commercial child pornography tapes, sexually explicit photographs, magazines, along with video, television, and camera equipment were all seized during the execution of this search warrant. And, indeed, there was lots of evidence found uh, where video and photos of the 16-year-old victim when she was still in between those ages of 5 and 10. As a result of this search and seizure, the defendant was arrested on April 28, 1989 and charged with criminal sexual assault of a child. The statute of limitations in effect at the time these heinous acts were being committed was six years. It is not being argued by either the prosecutor or the defense that under the previous limitation period, the charges here would have been barred back in August of 1988. However, before the running of the then applicable six-year statute of limitations, the legislature amended the statute. This amendment became effective March 30th, 1988 which was five months before the previous statute of limitations would have expired for Mr. Rousseau. So let me give you those dates again, all right? 1978, through and including August of 1982, these assaults were occurring to a girl who was between the years, ages of of five and ten. Now, in August of 1982, that's when the last assault occurred, thus the six-year statute of limitation begins its countdown. Now, in March of 1988, the statute of limitations gets amended by the Michigan legislature using either the six-year timeline or the victim's 21st birthday, whichever comes later. In August of 1988, the six years has now elapsed since defendant last assaulted the victim. And in April of 1989, defendant gets arrested for assaulting the 16-year-old victim when she was between the ages of 5 and 10, even though it's been six years and five months. The defendant filed a motion to suppress the evidence and to dismiss the charges, claiming that the action was barred by the statute of limitations and that the warrant was defective. The trial court granted both motions, agreeing that the amended statute could not be applied to crimes committed before its effective date and that the information supporting probable cause to search the defendant's house was stale. The trial court ordered that the charges against the defendant be dismissed. This decision was appealed to the Michigan Court of Appeals and they held that the legislature intended the amendment to apply to offenses not time-barred on the effective date of this brand new act, or this updated statute of limitation. And it gets to the Michigan Supreme Court, which is what we're reviewing right now, and they uphold the Michigan Court of Appeals decision, finding it was not an ex post facto violation to extend the statute of limitations on this crime. And here are the arguments made by the two sides. Now, the prosecutor, they argued that the extension of the statute of limitation period applies to those offenses that were committed before the statute of limitations was amended, but were not yet time barred under that previous limitation. Of course, the defendant argued that the amendment to the statute of limitation does not specifically state that it applies retroactively to acts like what defendant Russo did, and so that the amendment should not be applicable to him. The Michigan Court of Appeals sided with the prosecutor and found that changes to a statute limitation is not what the ex post facto provision intends to protect. The Supremes held that the ex post facto provision is intended to secure substantial personal rights against arbitrary and oppressive legislation. Ex post facto does not limit legislative control of remedies and procedures when there are no matters of substance, so maybe said another way statute of limitations aren't substantive rights, they're procedural rights. Procedural rights enjoy a far lesser amount of protections because they're merely tangential actions taken to deal with real substantive rights. So look at it like this. You have a substantive due right to a fair trial if you're charged with a crime. How long the prosecutor has to bring those charges against you is determined by the Michigan legislature. Even though it may work to the disadvantage of a defendant, a procedural change is not ex post facto. More specifically to our case, legislation will not be found to violate the ex post facto clause of the Michigan Constitution simply because it works to the disadvantage of the defendant. Our Michigan Supreme Court held it is a well-settled principle that applying the extended statute limitations to the then not yet time barred sexual assaults does not constitute ex post facto. The sexual assaults were not innocent when committed, the amount of punishment is unchanged, and the defendant has not been deprived of any defense available to him at the time that these acts are committed. The statute of limitation defense was not available to the defendant at the time the assaults were committed or at the time the amendment became effective and that's key there. The Michigan legislature amended the statute of limitation five months before the defendant had any substantive right to invoke any due process violation. Now this would have been an entirely different outcome if the law went into effect after the six years had elapsed. But remember, the key here, not only had the six years not yet elapsed when the law was changed, it added the provision, which allows the victim to turn 21, whichever is later. Since the girl was only 16 years old at the time she went to the police, yeah, okay, the six years had elapsed by that point, but she hadn't yet turned 21. So that's why the defendant could be criminally charged. If she had waited until she was 21 years old plus an additional day old, then no, she could not have been charged. The defendant's point was that he didn't think it was fair that the quote-unquote or before turning 21 years old provision should apply to him because at the time he committed those awful actions against the five-year-old girl, the or is over 21 years provision was not part of the crime but because the Michigan Supreme Court said a statute of limitation is merely a procedural right, and because the six-year statute of limitation as applied to him hadn't yet expired when the new statute of limitation went into effect, the defendant can't argue an ex post facto violation has occurred. This next case of Riley versus Parole Board, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1996, deals with a person who is currently imprisoned but believes a parole board violated his ex post facto provision. And just spoiler alert, it's not ex post facto. See, Mr. Riley is serving a life sentence but asked the court to issue a writ of mandamus to force the parole board to comply with its statutory duty to conduct a parole interview of the plaintiff. So, sidebar, a writ of mandamus means an order from a court to an inferior governmental official ordering the government official to properly fulfill their official duties or correct an abuse of discretion. So what that means for our case is that Mr. Riley was requesting the court to order the Michigan Parole Board to hold a parole hearing to determine whether he should be released from prison. But here's the problem for Mr. Riley. In 1992, the Michigan legislature amended the law to read as follows.
0: A prisoner under sentence for life, or for a term of years, other than prisoners sentenced for life for murder in the first degree, and prisoners sentenced for life or for a minimum term of imprisonment for a major controlled substances offense, who has served 10 calendar years of the sentence, is subject to the jurisdiction of the parole board and may be released on parole by the parole board subject to the following conditions. A. One member of the parole board shall interview the prisoner at the conclusion of four calendar years of the sentence and biennially thereafter.
1: The takeaway is that when the defendant was originally sentenced to life in prison with, with, that's very key, with a possibility of parole, it was to be determined every four years. Under this new law, he would now have to go every five years before he could be eligible for parole. Essentially, instead of him having the opportunity to be sprung from the joint every four years, he now only gets that possibility once every five years. The Court of Appeal said that's not an ex post facto violation. The reason is because Mr. Riley is still eligible for parole. It's just once every five years instead of once every four years. That's not an increase in punishment. His punishment, to be clear, is a life sentence. That additional year of imprisonment between parole interviews isn't adding anything onto his imprisonment time because his imprisonment time is technically forever. Once again, the Michigan Court of Appeals distinguishes between something which is a substantive right versus something which is a procedural right. They relied upon our previous case that we just reviewed, the Rousseau case, with its uh, statute of limitation timeline. Again, just like that last case, a parole interview is purely a procedural action given to a prisoner, it is not a substantive right as afforded and protected under the Michigan Constitution. For that reason, changing how frequently a prisoner may get a parole interview is purely procedural in nature. It is not substantive in nature. All right, I think that's going to do it for episode number uh, 24 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. I'm not yet done with ex post facto cases, but our last three are going to be really long. They're going to take some time to review, and this podcast has gotten pretty lengthy as it currently stands. So if you'd like to reach out to me, my website is TonySnyder.com, but also you can find me at Tony Snyder on Twitter.
0: The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.